pow, 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 pow. You're going smash, 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 smash. Hello, I'm Darren Mason. Even... I podcast with. I did... It didn't. I didn't press the button until you started talking before I pressed it. Um, I'm. Um, um... See, it's not so easy on the other side, is it? I'm George McFly. Hey, you! You get your goddamn hands off her. I think that sounds a bit more like a Jack Nicholson, but um, because do you know why I'm George McFly today? Darren, <laughs> because why are you George ev- McFly today, George? Because it's episode eighty-eight of mm. the world famous Sitchfield George podcast. Some people are like, what the hell are you talking about already? I don't know. These early morning starts. You um, know, most podcasts have been going for like ten years. Like us, have reached episode six thousand. But you know, I've made this point before. I listen to others, and they're in the, they are in the, the high hundreds, and I'm like us slackers bumping along. And anyway, it's quality, 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 content. quality over content. <laughs> um, uh, follow F U John John Darren F F U George. Do you have any from last time? Uh, no. Sounds a follow-up, by the way. New listeners. Many, many listeners. New listeners. Um, well, I've got some some follow-up. So, first of all, there's a television series produced by Apple TV. Well, it's released on the streaming service Apple TV+, Plus, made by Apple slash BBC Studios. It's called Prehistoric Planet. And Series 1 screened last year and we're now allowed to call it series one because a couple of days ago i'm speaking on 3rd of february 2023 a couple of days ago it was announced that series two is a thing and it's going to be released in may 2023 so um obviously would love to say loads about it and can't not going to say a single thing about it apart from the fact that it exists you've been involved in it I've been involved in it, and many other people are involved in it, and it's going to be pretty flippant. No, it's awesome. just me and you, Darren. <laughs> I can't even make that joke. I'd Through be every frame, every frame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'd love to talk about Prehistoric Planet, but uh, not today. We will sometime soon. So there's that, there's that. Uh, and then also, follow up, I want. do you remember I was talking about the Beast of the Mesozoic Tyrannosaur range, and I showed the gigantic 1 to 18 scale T Rex figure. Yep. Well, Hellion and I have made an unboxing video. We're next to make a review video, but look, here's the, the actual figure out of its box. Isn't that incredible? It's How big. How big is that? It's, it's, I think I did measure it. It's over 70 centimeters. I've now completely forgotten. But, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's just beautiful. I mean, a uh, limited range of articulation in various of its joints. It's currently mounted on a stand, so it's not meant to be played with, not meant to be mobile. But uh, there you go. That's what it looks like, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> what an idiot. Fantastic. What a so, that. Presumably that's on your YouTube channel. Not yet, <laughs> but we haven't finished editing or we haven't <laughs> made the review one. We've made the unboxing one. Um, you know, point of order with this follow-up, Darren. It seems more like um, not so much follow-up as news. 
News from the world of Darren and John. The main piece of, I've now utterly baffled as to what category this should be in, but the main um, talking point for today, but it's also news from the world of Darren, certainly, is the publication of this beautiful new book, which I'll just hold up to the camera for our listeners. (laughs) 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 Why? Why? Why are you like this, Darren? Ancient Sea Reptiles, published in the UK by the Natural History Museum in London and published in the USA by Smithsonian Books. Um, It's out now! And... um, already it's it's been out for it came out on the 28th of february and we're now in the third of march um so it's been out for a few days and it's selling really well like a lot of places are actually sold out which uh i put down to my um you know vociferous advocacy on twitter uh, uh-huh. on, on social media but um i'm guessing of course that you haven't got one because i know you don't nope. do books um, but to the people that have that have got it and said really nice things about it, thanks very much. There's quite a, there's a, there's a few really positive reviews already, and I wanted to do a bunch of things. First of all, just talk a little bit more about what's in the book, and then use it as a springboard to talk about the amazing marine reptiles of the Mesozoic, of the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous, because there's loads of interesting things to say about them. We're going to have to be very brief to keep it on time. So, how does that sound? Okay, sounds good. Right, so so first of all, if you know my book that I co-authored with Paul Barrett, first published in 2016, uh, Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved, well, which is soon to go to third edition, by the way. I'm currently making loads of changes for the next edition. Um, Ancient Sea Reptiles, reptiles, full title of which is Plesiosaurs, Ichthyosaurs, Mosasaurs, and more. Ancient Sea Reptiles, Plesiosaurs, and Mosasaurs. Um, It's sort of in the same format as that. So it's this size. <clears throat> this size? <laughs> it's neither small nor large. It's somewhere in the middle. It's sort of bookish size. Yeah, it's bigger about than 200... a novel. More than exactly. the biggest book you've ever seen. Exactly. It's about 200 pages. Um, I really like the look of it. I really like the design. Um, so it's this. Um, yeah, there's, there's like, you know, illustrations on almost every single page. Quite possibly on every single no no there's one there's one that doesn't have nearly every single page, <laughs> and yeah mixture of diagrams cladograms, um, and lots of really nice color specimen photos showing actual fossils. Of course, there are lots of really really nice near complete or semi complete Mesozoic marine reptile fossils. The fact that the book is published by the Natural History Museum, of course, they have one of the world's uh, possibly the world's but i'm never sure uh, one certainly one of the world's largest collections of mesozoic marine reptiles um uh, in particular a huge collection of ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs they have a whole bunch of triassic things as well they have some cretaceous mosasaurs as well they have lots of turtley stuff also but mostly ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs is what they've got because of course here in western europe southern england in particular we sort of are the home of certainly early and middle Jurassic marine reptiles, which is an interesting uh, part of the discussion about these animals. Why is that so? Um, and yeah, so we've got loads of pictures of those and also loads of pictures of um, loads of colour artwork uh, from various um, uh, paleo artists, including Gabriella Guito, Tosha Holman, Bob Nichols, Mark Witten, um, 
Julia Delavera, uh, Joshua Knipper, uh, and others. Did, did I was just about to say deliberately had a strict no Conway mandate on this book? Yeah, I was going to say definitely seems like there was a there was a um a bit of a no John Conway's club going on here. But I've just landed on page eighty one and shock horror. It's not true. You've got two um, there's two Conway illustrations in there. Oh, is it? Okay. There, yeah, there is. So, damn it. Well, can, those two. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because, and that's because there's a section on um, marine pterosaurs and birds. Mm. Uh, a short section, because it says, like, if we're talking about marine reptiles, we've got to say there are pterosaurs and there are birds. Um, without pages, you know, I actually I think actually say in that section, yeah, you, you could do whole books on these things, on pterosaurs and on birds, obviously, which maybe one day I will. But um, yeah, so I'm really happy with the way it looks and really nice spread of all these kinds of illustrations. So really nicely designed. And as uh, as I've said several times already, including at the Tetraboard Zoology article, um, this is the book that I've wanted to do for. Uh, probably the whole of my adult life. I've always wanted to do a Mesozoic Marine Reptile book. I've never thought that they've been done well, with all due respect to the authors who've written about them before. Um, there are a list of books that have covered marine reptiles, but I don't know. They've they have they either haven't covered like the sort of full range of them. They haven't covered like all the Triassic groups, or they've been some way unusual. Um, and I've now got to start thinking hoping that the people who have written the books aren't listening to this because uh, it's never terribly <laughs> offensive. But, um, uh, yeah, because there's Richard Well, there's Ellis's... good chances, given that we have like 11 billion listeners now. 12.2 uh, million at the moment, John. Don't exaggerate. Mm. Um, Richard Ellis's Sea Dragons, Predators of the Prehistoric Oceans, is often mooted as like, this is the go-to guide. But I'm not super keen on it. I don't really you know. I don't like the sort of focus he has in the chapters. It all seems very odd to me. And it's also not, um, it's not, it's got his hand-drawn illustrations, um, but it doesn't have like, you know, photos or uh, sort of colour pictures and stuff. And, uh, it's also that, getting pretty old now, isn't it? I guess it's from around 2000. Um, yeah, uh, 20 years. It's a long time in this sort of paleontology, I think. Yes, that's definitely true. There's also, there's a book that was published in 2021, Called, it's, it's in French. I can't remember the title. I'm just checking. It's called La Mer Tombe du Dinosaur by Natalie Bardet and colleagues. And I haven't seen it. And um, obviously, it was published while I was writing um, Ancient Sea Reptiles. So I wasn't able to, I wasn't aware of it. Um, I haven't seen it, and I'm, I apologise to those authors if they do a similarly good job. <laughs> fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed. But of course, it's in French, and no disrespect to the millions of French, tens of millions, hundreds of billions of French-speaking <laughs> humans worldwide. No offence intended to them, but um, I'm obviously talking about the English-speaking world. And um, while some English-speaking people can read French. <laughs> It's a probably a you know it's it's a percentage. Let's put it that way. What a tangent! So, like moving you flash on. There, Darren says some people that speak <laughs> English can also speak French or read French. I guess. Oui, oui, c'est vrai. Mais moi, je parle euh, non, euh, non, non. Je suis très désolé. 
Right, so let's see if we can get, it's going to have to be brief, see if we can get through five, <laughs> five different topics related to the world of ancient sea reptiles. That pertains only to, I think I've already made this point, the Mesozoic marine reptiles, the animals of the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. So this book goes through all the major groups in chapter by chapter order. It was very difficult to do like a chapter on here's everything about like lifestyle, here's everything about biomechanics, because then you end up spending like half the chapter talking about plesiosaurs when you know later on you've got to also have a chapter that talks about say the evolution and diversity of plesiosaurs so what i tended to do was instead and also plesiosaurs you know think about the things you want to say about plesiosaurs plesiosaurs are most famous for their necks the most famous for their flippers well those things are so different from what you would want to say about say ichthyosaurs that it seemed to me more sensible to do them in a partition group by group thing which you always get some negative take on because then it leads like a tour through the animal groups which some mm. people yeah which i can't avoid doing you know when you're talking about the complexities of uh, evolutionary history ramble 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 ichthyosaurs right so here's here's my opening salvo on ichthyosaurs the thing that i think is interesting about them is so when i was a student um i'm a sort of kid of the 70s and 80s and I really got academically interested in things like the late 80s and 90s. And I consider that my formative period. And I've said in many of the things I've written um, that I think, now I assume, <laughs> I always think this is coincidental with my, you know, to do with my own age, but it may well not be. It may be my own bias. I always think that actually the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s is when a lot changed in terms of our understanding of ancient life. And this is certainly true for dinosaurs, talk about this all the time in dinosaurs. I think it's also true for mesozoic marine reptiles. During the 80s and during the late 80s and early and mid 90s, it was a pivotal time of change. It was all of a sudden people started realizing that what had been the kind of like main thinking for much of the 20th century now needed to be removed replaced updated and the th the the ichthyosaur story when i was a student was that ichthyosaurs actually in terms of the mesozoic had their heyday early on they were predominantly animals of the triassic and early jurassic that's when lots of diversity evolved and then it got to the end of the early jurassic and then it was all downhill it was a slow march to death and nothingness it was like it was <laughs> it was done we are done now we've evolved into our final form you know the the teardrop shaped streamlined ophthalmosaurid type of so once you got to that it was like it's all it's all just where do you go here. you're done right you're so, done yeah. like so that was the slow story. march into evolutionary senility exactly so, yeah it, and it was like there's maybe two or three genera at the end of the jurassic and in the cretaceous there's one genus platypterygius that that squeaks through at low diversity it's in the background it's not very interesting and they die out at some point who really cares why um that was the, the standard narrative now it's, it has remained the case that the early sorry that the Jurassic from the really early on in the Jurassic actually until the end of the Jurassic that was a time of really interesting diversification in ichthyosaurs or ichthyopterygians if you use the terminology that some experts do they're very confused about this. Um, there's all kinds of different like sizes and shapes and sort of unusual ones the Gripidians, the Mixosaurs, the Simospondylus, and the Shastasaurs. Um, but the Jurassic is the time of the Parvopelvians, these more conventional shaped ones. Uh, the 
recent discoveries, phylogenetic studies, new species that have been named, better descriptions of their anatomy has shown that this conventional view pretty much completely wrong. In fact, there are more, at the genus level, there are more ichthyosaurs in the late Jurassic uh, than there are in like, you know, the early Jurassic. So it's not true that they were done and dusted in the early part of the Mesozoic. And in the Cretaceous, we now know that it's something like, it's over eight different lineages do survive across the Jurassic-Cretaceous boundary. And in the Cretaceous, there's still substantial, um, there's this difference between disparity and diversity. So diversity means species number. There's a fairly good like diversity, fairly good number of them. And they're moderately disparate in terms of like sizes, jaw form, tooth anatomy lifestyles so there is a different story relative to what you know was always thought to be the case but they do all belong basically to a single clade they're not a single like family level clade they are all ophthalmosaurids of some sort so there is kind of a reduced diversity but there's a high species level diversity and disparity is moderate so that's the I've tried. <laughs> yeah, so I I've got to say it doesn't sound like the the traditional story to me is completely blown out of the water. It just looks like, as you might expect, as you discover more fossils, it expands somewhat. So maybe the difference is that there's no decline in the Jurassic. Like it used to be thought there was a decline in the Jurassic, and there just isn't. Yeah. Um, but there does seem to be a significant. Um, loss of ichthyosaurs into the Cretaceous, right? There's not anything like the diversity and disparity you had in the Jurassic. Yeah, yeah, that 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 that's true. You you lose all the sort of like weird, interesting forms and skull shapes that you had in the Triassic and the Jurassic. That's definitely true. But but yeah, the the conventional narrative that if you were swimming around in the Cretaceous seas and you were paying attention to um, uh, like plesiosaurs and, and fishes and, and stuff, there might be like a shadowy ichthyosaur in the background, just one, and it's some rare <laughs> thing at the edge of ecosystems and it's not doing anything interesting. That is certainly not the case. They are still quite an important force in the early Cretaceous. So, so that's one of the things I say, which is kind of new. Um, something else that's also super interesting, going back to the early Jurassic stuff, is this diversity that you have in early Jurassic Parvopelvian, so here I'm not talking about really archaic ichthyosaurs with like cr the crushing teeth and weird short skulls and stuff. I'm not talking about those. But in groups like Leptonectids, which are these, or, or Urinosaurians, two different names, these like vaguely swordfish-like ichthyosaurs, and they live alongside a group of very large, robust-skulled, big-toothed, long-flippered ones called the Temnodontosaurs, what are leptonectids and temnodontosaurs actually doing? And there's like little sort of mentions of possibilities here and there in the ichthyosaur literature, but nobody's ever really sort of pulled it all together and discussed it at length. The closest to it is Chris McGowan's um, like mid 80s book, Dragons, Spitfires and Sea Dragons, where he does review a bit of ichthyosaur diversity in quite useful fashion the time but um but yeah um i have said like this is what we know about leptonectid slash uranosaurians um i i really like those those guys giant eyes 
often surprisingly big like the largest of them are sort of like six seven meters long uh, they, they, i said temnodontosaurs have got long flippers these uh leptonectors do as well and generally incredibly long um slender pointed snouts which of course have led people to mostly imagine them as billfish like predators that they were sort of zipping around like this is this is to show you a picture that's urinosaurus to give you a reminder of the animals we're talking about yeah you can see a massive overbite the lower jaw in that animal is really short the upper jaw is incredibly long um, people have imagined them as very fast and behaving like billfishes, like marlin and swordfishes, and nipping into, you know, like going into shoals of fishes and like slashing, uh, injuring fish. And that's that's been seriously proposed as the main way of life of these animals, but it doesn't look like it's true at all. They um, they lack basically all of the rostral specializations that billfishes have and instead they don't look suited for really fast swimming it looks yeah. instead like they were probably quite slow their giant eyes could be an adaptation for like low light levels and their teeth are of the their teeth are smooth crowned as opposed to with like um striations on them smooth crowns in marine reptiles generally correlate with like a sort of um sort of softer diet of small weak prey rather than big fleshy things that you have to get your teeth into so another idea is that these animals like just swam slowly over the seafloor <laughs> like <just> sculling <laughs> along really slowly and just like grab little deep sea um invertebrates. sea slugs and stuff not sea slugs because they weren't around in the early jurassic job. oh right. no, i didn't yeah. know that well, now you do, but um, okay. yeah, the gastropod. No, I don't because I'll forget. I see. I'm not going. Don't don't put me on a gastropod tangent. I could talk about that. Um, little little squinny things, soft body cephalopods. Um, yeah. So they're really cool. Leptonectids, temnodontosaurs. I'm just I'm talking too long about two these these animal groups, but really really like these animals. <laughs> We're not even going to get through ichthyosaurs <sighs> before we have to be done. Well, let's could say a lot more. There's tons to say. Plesiosaurs. So. Plesiosaurs, well known, best known for like, best known for two things. Best known for the fact that a lot of them have got ridiculously long necks. What's, do you know how long the longest neck is in terms of number of vertebrae? Oh, in vertebrae? Oh, yeah. I don't know. But it's like, oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's 50? That would not be within the elasmosaur range, which are the longest necked groups, because they've generally got over 60. There are some that have got there are some elasmosaurus, so there's one group of plesiosaurs called elasmosaurus, which are famous having particularly long necks, but they don't all have long necks. Some of them have got short necks. <laughs> some of them have gone back to less than 50 neck vertebrae, which is more like the ancestral. Short neck, long neck plesiosaurs. Yeah, yeah. But the longest necked ones, and the current record holder is Alberta Nectes, uh, the clues in the name, where it's from. It's got 75 neck vertebrae, 75. So for these super long necked ones, if you know anything about plesiosaurs, you'll be familiar with this flipping and flopping back and forth, change constant changing tack on like how flexible the neck was. And um, at times you've had some people say the neck was like super snaky and could loops and twists and curled on its curled back on itself. And at the other extreme, you've had people say that there was no range of motion between the individual vertebrae. Everything's locked together and the neck is sort of like <laughs> stiff. Um, 
I have become fairly convinced within recent decades that the neck is pretty flexible because uh, kind of similar dis discussion to what we've had about sauropod dinosaurs. So long as you've got like a reasonable number of vertebrae and by reasonable, I mean anything more than like 10, right? It doesn't have to be a ridiculous number, but as soon as you've got a neck of reasonable length, fact you have to have cartilaginous pads between vertebrae There's no escape in that everything's got that the fact that you've got cartilage and the fact that bones can move relative to one another due to this cartilaginous capsule and due to the way the interlocking joints the zygopopoces work you must no argument about this you must have something like let's say the tiniest amount of degree of movement let's say five degrees movement which if you actually imagine that imagine two vertebrae stuck together like two cotton reels or hockey pucks now think mm. of five degrees it's tiny but if you have a neck of of like over 50 over 60 over 70 vertebrae and you add up like five degrees motion five degrees possibility of bending very quickly you get into a neck that's able to basically sort of turn to its side by about 90 degrees relative to the long axis or more i mean way more than 90 degrees and people have done this there's a couple of really nice studies there's one led by maria zamet in particular that i really like where they um did work out the range of motion even allowing for just a small degree of change of angle between adjacent vertebrae and you find no doubt the long necked ones or even the mid necked ones they can basically bend the neck 180 degrees they can look behind themselves they can bend it up they can bend it down and of course why would they just bend it in one plane just one curve why not have like why not have like a couple of sort of sinuous curves so we don't want to go back to the late 1800s style of re reconstructions where people showed the, the necks as like floppy and noodly or sort of like <laughs> a sort of twisty snake curling back on its back we don't want to go back to that that does seem to be overdone but you certainly should imagine them having a reasonable range of neck movement so that yeah. so there's there's that right um and then on the i think i said two things the other thing is the fact that there are several groups of plesiosaurs where the neck is relatively short and by this i mean that they massive air quotes they only have 20 ish neck vertebrae which again is ridiculous, you know, from a mammalian point of view with our pathetic seven for average mammals, not all mammals, but for most of them. Um, and yeah, they've got a relatively short neck and relatively large head. And this pliosauromorph large headed short necked form evolved at least three times. And of course here, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to refer people back to that episode because I hate it so much. <laughs> we did really early on. A plesiosaur episode, didn't we? And it was an utter, mm. utter chaos. So, and that utter chaosness is what's what's the word there? Chaos. I'm not sure chaos is quite the right way, way to describe it, but it was fairly unfollowable. unfollowable. Unless you already already knew all these groups, then oh wow, did you get lost? Yeah, and that's kind of the point of my plesiosaur chapter here. It's like plesiosaur phylogeny is is really complicated mm. because so again, th so this is me going back to the what I said about um things changing like you know within recent decades. When I was a student, it was the pliosauroid versus plesiosauroid system. So the long-necked ones, the plesiosauroids, 
they were doing the long neck thing and their necks were getting longer and longer over time culminating in the late cretaceous giant elasmosaurids and the pliosauroids three or four groups of short necked ones and they were becoming bigger and more predatory and their necks were becoming shorter over time um now this system was developed in the 1950s and 60s predominantly by samuel wells very respected worker did loads of great stuff particularly on elasmosaurids and what's not tremendously well known unless you're a specialist is that this simple system of plesiosophology actually replaced a horrendously and hilariously complicated one of the first decades of the 20th century so there's papers from the 20s and 30s in fact all the way up to the 60s where um, other plesiosaur workers were saying there is so much diversity particularly in the form of the pectoral girdle you know this because plesiosaur's got these gigantic plate-like coracoids mm. and scapulae shoulder blades like on, on the underside of the body and the pelvic girdle as well people like there's so much complexity and diversity in that there's so much diversity in proportions their vertebrae are actually really diverse in terms of you know the specific configuration how they fit together and whatnot that it looks like there's like 30 families and there's repeated evolution of short necks repeated evolution of large heads and the Wells system, plesiosaurids versus pliosaurids, overturned that and everyone accepted it, mostly due to the influence of Alfred Romer, whose textbooks of the mid-20th century have been, you know, massively influential in like nearly everything in, in vertebrate history. Um, but yeah, it's wrong. It's like, no, their phylogeny was actually really complicated. The pliosauromorph relatively short-necked form evolved repeatedly from long-necked ancestors even within the groups like say the pliosaurids specifically the group that includes Lyopleurodon and pliosaurus and chronosaurus and oh dear that name um controversy even within these individual family level groups they start out as plesiosauromorph they start out as long-necked and then in their history they become they become short-necked so um and then within individual families, uh, air quotes around families, um, you have some members of the groups convergently evolving features that make them look like members of totally different groups. So like in, um, no, 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 I'm not even going to go down that route. I'm just going to start talking about convergences that happen within specific groups like polypatylids. Mm. And it's, mm. oh dear. It's, so basically by the book, it's, it's covered in the book. So I think, oh yeah, so I think the takeaway there is the gross morphology of, of a plesiosaur is not a very good guide to where it actually fits in the family tree, right? Yeah, the long correct. neck, short neck thing doesn't work when you're trying to figure out how something's related to another thing. Which is, yeah. okay, well, yeah, it's not really surprising. What is a little bit surprising, I mean, it's a little bit surprising, I suppose, that there's so much convergence going on, but... Uh, swimming animals i don't know it just it feels to me like swimming animals have convergences in a stronger way than i think i i think this they are back... more morphologically constrained in some ways right there's certain shapes that just don't work well, so that's that's true uh but then you could say that that what you kind of are getting out there gross morphology plesiosaurs are basically all in, in gross morphological terms pretty conservative anyway they're sort of the same basic body shape it's so yes. this this idea that the that like big heads and short necks and a few other details are the things that group them together is like 
that seems like, with all due respect to the authors that pushed it, that's a really superficial um, understanding of like where it's at. Because it's like, how do you determine how organisms are related to one another? Now, in the living world, we know that like basically molecular, you know, genes are the key, unfortunately. Uh, but <laughs> forget about genetics now, because you know our, our knowledge of fossils uh, when it comes to you know genetics is is somewhat limited, so at least. So how much information do you need to get a handle on how things are related? Like a vertebrate is an incredibly complicated object with like thousands and thousands of different like little anatomical bits and pieces. Which of the features are the important ones? Air quotes. Oh my God, air quotes around important. What's the key thing for grouping things together? It's like, I have no idea. It's like, think of like how complex, I don't know, think of any part of the body so uh, palate right how many bones form the palate it's like got 10 bones in it numerous different configurations and if you start looking at those sorts of details animals like plesiosaurs you find that wait a minute this thing with a big head and short neck has got a palatal configuration there's nothing like the other things with the big heads and the short necks and it's like to group them together based on this gestalt like big head short neck that's the that's the that's the you know yeah that's the that's so the Pony Grail was like, no. Before cladistics, I think there was a hope that you would be able to find anatomical clues, right? A simple heuristic to see what was related to other things, right? You'd find one little tell. Um, you know, in some ways, that would be a great idea. It'd be sort of a powerful science. So we can tell what's related by looking at the, because we know these are the special things to look at. Um, a non-expert doesn't know which things to look at, so they might just look at something dumb like, where's well, this got a long neck and that's got a short neck? But an expert will be able to tell, oh, there's this little thing here. Sorry, I shouldn't have dragged that in. It made the con That joke made the uh, conversation quite confusing. But um, the long neck, short neck joke, because they were hoping this was a tell, right? Um, but actually, I think the insight in cladistics is there probably is no tell right there's no there are no special features use yeah. all the features all yeah. the features you can possibly stick in use them all and that's the only hope we've got i think i think that's sort of the essential idea of cladistics and that's why we do it um, i agree i, I agree because there's no I, special I, features yeah. i find myself saying this more and more it's like we have kind of traditionally it's really hard to shake the mindset i still have it it's hard to shake the idea that well, I know these group of animals and I can tell that because that <laughs> one has got that lump on the basiocipital, that shows that it's a member of group X. Whereas in actual fact, what we're learning, we are learning this predominantly from genetics, but it's becoming true from morphology-based attempts as well, is you need handfuls of data muck. You need like hand scoops and scoops of like all the data you can get and you slap it in the machine. And so I don't know what is because there are so many surprises there's so many things that we don't remember we don't like really process when we write them down or even look at them um i say that's becoming that's becoming the case and mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh, and there definitely was a but computers are taking our jobs sort of notion with cladistics right? <laughs> uh, the article on larks <laughs> that i recently published at tentable zoology is very relevant here to those of you who've who've um uh read it let me very 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 quickly in passing because oh my god this is off tangent but so in larks 
that's the group of passerine birds there's these animals that have got very specific bill configurations and people like we know how these things are related and then the molecular phylo phylogenetics of nah, that one with the stupid big fat bill goes within a, a group where everyone's got a skinny curved bill and this just does not match morphology at all and mm, I, yep whether whether the phylogenies we ever create for fossil animals reflect true phylogeny is of course the big uh unknown and we could be and people have said this many times we mustn't pretend that paleontologists don't say this all the time we could be completely wrong about everything when it's based on fossils alone we've got some really nice indications of that glyptodonts is a, is a good example where glyptodonts go within Sinatra. but but we say that we're saying like in science you work with the data you have you can't pretend that we magically have access to another source of data that's going to overturn it because at the moment um if it is there we don't have it basically we've got to work with what we have so we're doing our best massive tangent there the other thing i wanted to say about <laughs> plesiosaurs is plesiosaurs i make again i make this point several times in the book and i i make this point generally when i talk about mesozoic marine reptiles there was kind of an implication again i feel like this could be my own you know i was listening to the wrong people or reading the wrong books but the implication i was got that these animals they're they're just not that great they're like whales and dolphins oh my god have you ever seen a dolphin jump it's beautiful it can jump a mile out of the water please yourselves oh, it's a bit of crap really <laughs> the, the sea is basically like a warm bath easy life basically it's just a lizard that went to live in the sea and it got big and of course its limbs turned into paddles and it rode along it probably couldn't go very probably couldn't dive certainly couldn't jump certainly couldn't go faster than like me i'm a crap swimmer and i could out swim a please yourself that's the impression i get from the old literature you know what i mean the old literature like literature from the 70s and 80s like these animals mm, yeah. they're not really they're not, they're not really a familiar sort of literature about any mesozoic animal really I, yeah and it's like are you kidding have you actually looked at these things or done any work on them at all because i think you know my gut feeling on these things, let's start with that. My gut feeling is like these animals are, I'm going to repeat what I say about dinosaurs. They're off the flipping charts in terms of like just the general, like what this was like in terms of what the, even without doing any technical work at all, it's like the spaces where the jaw muscles were, the amount of musculature that's available to power the limbs, the girth width of the body cavity, all those kinds of things like holy hell this is like this is like an orca times 10 you know this animal can probably swim at a pretty impressive speed it can probably jump it can probably kill like rip dinosaurs off the land all these sorts of things it can probably punch through iron with its teeth <laughs> bite granite in half laser powered vision you know and yeah. some of the stuff <laughs> some laser eyes some of the stuff that we're actually doing confirms that not lasers but that'll For, come later that'll come. lasers don't fossilize well yes um so swimming right again you know think of the what what's the name for this paradigm where where mesozoic animals are crap because <laughs> this government there's like the mesozoic time yeah we need a name for that don't we the inept era yeah yeah i, I actually did cover this in my my talk at the brian ford event it was like there was a time when all the dinosaurs and other animals in the mesozoic they were just terrible. Uh, could only move around in warm water. Um, yeah, 
that kind of thinking. So, so um, people are starting to realize this is just, yeah, wait a minute, actually do even a little bit of work on this kind of stuff, biomechanics and bite forces and swimming speeds of these animals, they're off the charts. They are at least as good as, and excuse me for using that very crude term, at least as good as things like whales, at least. So for plesiosaurs, wait a second, like they've got wings. There are swimming animals today, they've got wings, sea turtles, penguins, among a few others. But wait a minute, plesiosaurs have got two pairs of wings. What does that mean? What the hell is the deal with that? And for a while, a bunch of us have started to think that one of the key things in flight, and we've got to talk about this flight, you know, this is this is true flight, it's just flight in a denser medium than air. Um, a key thing in flight is what vortices mean for your propulsion. So vortices are shed from the tips of wings, they're generated on the leading edge, and you want your vortex to be shed off your wing as a sort of like nice clean donut shaped thing swept cleanly away and that generates a ton of thrust but if you've got two pairs of uh wings what you don't want is for one of the pairs of wings to smash through the vortex created by the other set because then you don't have a clean donut shaped vortex you smash the vortex up and you get like a big swirling horrible mess creates loads of drag and ruins your thrust creation um so we started to wonder if there you go case closed darren they were crap <laughs> that's it they were totally inefficient so yeah. a a model that was developed in the 80s and 90s um called the alternating downstroke model proposed that plesiosaurs so this is only going to work for john you're the only person that can see this <laughs> these are two plesiosaur wings pointing right at you sticking out sideways from the side of the body and you want the animal to be generating thrust continuously. And they can only, it seems they can only generate thrust on the downstroke because the muscles that power the, that pull the limb downwards are way more powerful than the ones that bring the limbs up. So the downstroke is probably the main thrust creation thing. So Rees and Frey, German researchers, biomechanics people, they worked out that, um, Jürgen Rees and Dino Frey, they worked out that, if the animals are constantly producing downstroke, then they're constantly producing thrust all the time they're swimming. So they said if there are two limb pairs, then as one limb pair is undergoing the downstroke, the other one is in its upstroke. So they're saying downstroke, 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 all the time, right? With But with alternating limb sets. And I hope that makes sense for those of you who can't see me flipping my hands up and down. I think the alternating uh, concept is pretty simple. I think people will get it without seeing the flipping. All right. Yeah. But then now the vortex issue. So vortex is shed at the end of the downstroke. So if you now are doing the downstroke with the first pair and then the second pair of limbs, the posterior set of limbs, wings, is meant to undergo its upstroke, it's now undergoing its upstroke through the vortex shed by the first one. So basically rather than going pow 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 you're going smash 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 <laughs> smashing through the vortices constantly and creating loads of this big swirling mass uh, of mess it basically it doesn't work and 
I'm not just saying this intuitively, people have built robots and tested this, and there's now very good understanding of what it actually means in terms of, you know, actual water to uh, actual propulsion. So in 2017, a team led by Luke Muscat at the University of Southampton, I was on this, Colin Palmer, um, who you'll know because of his pterosaur work, he was on it, whole, so were a bunch of other people. We <sighs> built a robotic rig <laughs> um, in a flume tank. Did it have laser eyes? It didn't because it turns out that's not that important for this. Oh, really? Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this research is now fairly well known. I really like it. And what we basically were able to show, and we weren't the first to say this, but the first to demonstrate it with robots and lasers and stuff, is that rather than having al the alternating downstroke model doesn't work, but if you have the limbs in a phased system, so they're really closely matching, like precisely how they undergo. So hang on. So you're saying it didn't have lasers, but it did have phases? <laughs> I hope I didn't say phases. Oh, phased. It's a phased system. So they're actually able to time precisely the movement of the wing sets so that the posterior wing pair can capture the vortex that's shed by the first wing pair. And by doing this, they can capture, yeah, they capture the vortex and they like push that vortex away with the second, describing it in crude terms pushing it away with the second limb set boosts performance by up to where well, they could generate 60% more thrust and swim at 40% higher efficiency than not doing it this way. So like the energetic, you know, return and what it actually means in terms of thrust and stuff, absolutely huge. So um, it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. And if we favor the view that evolution mostly walks toward mostly works towards greater efficiency and it doesn't always as we, we covered this actually a couple of episodes ago sexual selection means that organisms do all kinds of inefficient things but if we mostly favor the view that organisms work to efficiency and certainly if you're a swimmer you should swim because you want to be fast to catch fish and whatnot and escape predators then th this is so efficient and allows such speed that it is likely that it's the same system it's the system that they did actually use so we tested it that the the plesiosaur flippers that we built we based the flippers on the uh the the collard plesiosaur which is a, a juvenile romaliosaurid plesiosaur with soft tissue preservation on the flippers um which means that we've tested the flippers of one particular kind of plesiosaur. And of course, plesiosaurs are actually quite variable in terms of flipper form. So our next step, and we're working on this right now, is to um, produce models of flippers of other plesiosaur groups and test them in the same way. So, uh, yeah, so that research is in progress. Uh, and it's in keeping with, yeah, I, I basically think that it means that plesiosaurs were like you know doing something that's really quite different from anything alive today they were way more sort of probably speedy maneuverable efficient than people have really appreciated before and here's a, a tangent that i'll keep really brief i was really interested to discover that the exact the same phase system of vortex capture was discovered independently by james cameron and his team during the making of avatar so they've got these four winged creatures called the ikran or the banshees and 
you know obviously the creatures of avatar have been discussed a lot recently because the second movie the way of water and if you watch the wing um uh phasing in uh in avatar the ikran don't just do alternating up down up down they also have like a phase thing and there's a making of video where james cameron says exactly what i've just said he said they discovered and I didn't know this until a couple of months ago. They said they found that if the second wing pair came up through the vortex, it caused more drag than thrust. And therefore, they have the, the two operating in closer synchrony so that there's this vortex capture. I'm like, what? <laughs> you guys discovered that independently of our 2017 Please Yourself study? Yeah. <laughs> so I I, th I thought that was really interesting. I'm pretty sure they didn't read our study and then nick it because I think the timing shows that they were doing it. Uh, I've, I've I've lost track of time. I got no sense of when Avatar's years ago, isn't it? It's like tw 2000. The original one. The yeah, first one. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah, long time ago. Um, well, those were the two things I wanted to say about plesiosaurs. I wanted to say some stuff about. Thalatosuchians, the sea crocs, mosasaurs, the fact that there's reasons for thinking that they might have evolved their pelagic body form more than once, which is sort of connected to what we were saying about... It's sort of connected, but also not at all the same about plesiosaurs. And then finally, the main event, <laughs> which is the Triassic groups that haven't been really covered in depth before. So hang on, hang on. You wanted to talk about two other big groups plus a whole bunch of Triassic groups, and you thought this was going to fit somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't, not, you know. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. We could possibly do mm. one more. One more. Well, should we bother? No, I think we should. I think we should stop there and like leave okay. it for All right, episodes. we'll do a two-parter. We'll do next week. We'll do... The sea crocs, mosasaurs, um, and all these Triassic groups. Triassic quite a lot of them, isn't thing. there? Yeah, but it's not like you don't have to go. Yeah, but, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not imagining for a minute that we'll talk for half an hour about Hoopasuchians. I'm saying, and then there's the Triassic things, and here's yeah, how... but they're morphologically diverse, aren't they? So there's interesting things to say about them. Is that, um, or am I completely wrong about that? No, that's totally true. That is uh, that is accurate. You're right. Yeah. So just it's not just going to be a listing of. <laughs> yeah, so there's that, and therefore people people love lists of names that mean nothing. <laughs> um, oh, and then yeah, so actually, and, all those things, you know. So in some ways, we've done like the big ones people are familiar with. People know mosasaurs too, but we've got a lot of um. Like I don't, I think sea crocodiles are less familiar, and um, the Triassic stuff. People are sort of aware, but I don't think they know how they fit together. So I think that maybe some of the, if we leave that till next week, we've got some, you know. Uh, a bit of the the weirdos episode maybe yeah that sounds like a plan so what what would you say you've learned that you didn't really know or did, i never thought about that much so just from this um plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs i don't know probably not me a lot because i do follow this a little uh, plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs but i expect to i expect to learn something about sea crocs and um the triassic stuff next week for sure all right so ancient sea reptiles, plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, mosasaurs, and more. 
If you're in the UK, published by the Natural History Museum. If you're in North America, published by Smithsonian. They've got different covers, completely different like design teams. I haven't seen the American one yet. Um, it's available. Who's that, who's that one that, will that cover by? The one here? It's by Haida Jaffrey, who's a new young paleo artist, uh, I think, in Pakistan. I'm not mm -hmm. completely sure about that. But, nice um, picture. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's a for those of you who can't see it, it's a uh, a giant pliosaurus like smashing down through the water surface as if it's just like done a sort of breach of some kind um, at the surface. Yeah, it looks really good, and it's a very blue book. If you just flick through the pages, you get this overwhelming sense of like sort of aquatic-y marine feel to it. Um, the book <laughs> Funny is that. <laughs> yeah, it's very reasonably priced. It's a uh, it, I think its retail price is £20 in the UK, but quite a few places are doing uh, it at like less than uh, less than £17, around £15, which I certainly consider uh, affordable for a book of this sort. In uh, the US, it's something like $25, but again, I think there's like sort of special offers on Amazon and stuff. Amazon are actually doing the best deal for it um, worldwide, and they sold well enough over the last couple of days that a lot of places have sold out, which is really good. <laughs> so I have got sales data. Um, I'll only say one thing, which is that when you talk about books selling well, the numbers are hilariously tiny anyway. It's like, it's like oh, we sold a million copies. No. Have we sold 10,000 copies? No. We sold 1,000 copies? No. Have we sold... We sold 101. No, I'm completely <laughs> joking. I'm completely joking. The numbers are the numbers are way, way above that. Totally joking, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, clearly it's, in the clearly in the hundreds of thousands. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah. doing all right. So yeah, so so please please do buy it. And thanks to those who've said good things about it already. Um, let's wrap up then. Are you on the internet? I have a website. Uh, johnconway.art and i am on mastodon john at sauropods.win and you awesome. are <clears throat> yes i blog at tetrapod zoology and the current article there is about ancient sea reptiles that's tetzu.com that's also the website where this podcast is hosted and i tweet at did your men deactivate the hyperdrive and the Millennium Falcon? Yes, my lord. Good. Prepare your boarding party and set your weapons for stun. Yes, my lord. At Tetsu. <laughs> um, this podcast project and the material at Tetrapodology and all of my extraneous writings and research is funded thanks to the kind and generous patrons at the Tetrapod Zoology Patreon. Is that fair to say? Which is the Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Tetsu, where you can enjoy as many as, I don't know, there's loads, pictures <laughs> and articles and things, behind the scenes stuff. I was, there is, there's hundreds, <laughs> I don't know how many there are. Uh, I'm currently, the main thing is my cryptids of Bernard Hooverman's project, which you can see come together in real time at uh, 
and my Patreon. And I think that's it. That's me. Thank you. Okay, that's it. All right, let's finish it up then. Okay. All right, bye. Bye.